Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. In this episode, I'm joined by Lady Edwina Grosner, daughter to the sixth Duke of Westminster. This conversation follows her journey from Eton Hall to Nepal and to this current day where she works within the UK prison system. I really enjoyed this episode as it shows a huge contrast from comfort to adversity and helping those in need. Let's get into it. Edwina, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Firstly, I'd like to get into your background, just so people get to know you. I understand you started to travel as you've moved through your life. So what led you to that point? And could you describe your upbringing and sort of what led you to want to explore outside of England, as an example? So I grew up in, um, I suppose, an unorthodox family in many ways, um, because I came from a family of great wealth and privilege. Um, My father was the Duke of Westminster, purported to be the wealthiest man in England. Um, I don't know who judges these things, but um, he he sadly is no longer with us. And so it's my brother now that has the title and he's the Duke of Westminster. So yeah, my upbringing in the Northwest of England, um, I lived at Eton Hall in Chester and uh, it was um, more like a sort of five star hotel really behind big gold black gates and, it was great fun. It was really fun. You know, we had dogs and horses and I had rats and mice and hamsters and rabbits and it was different. But my parents always travelled and um, loved kind of, you know, learning about different cultures and different places. And so from a very small age, my older sister and I, we went to some some amazing places. And, and I think that's always given us both actually a bit of a, a bit of a travel itch um which has been hampered somewhat hasn't it in the last couple of years what with covid but whereabouts did you go to out of interest because obviously uh, i'm guessing with that wealth there's nowhere that's really out of bounds i mean i suppose you could explore many different parts of the world and it wouldn't really be too much of an issue uh, it's not like you're going to no offense to benedorm but it's not like you go just to benedorm <laughs> We ventured a little further than Benadol. Um, so I remember one particular trip, we went to Tonga and Fiji. Um, so sort of really uh, sort of in the middle of nowhere and a big voyage to get there. Um, my parents used to have a cattle ranch in Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. So we used to go out to Australia quite a lot. Um, I remember going to Bermuda with them. Um, yeah, you know sort of anywhere and everywhere really it was uh we were very yeah very lucky very privileged as I as I said did you feel or witness any um pressures growing up and moving through sort of your teenage years being within that family setting because obviously there is a um, how do you say there's a certain standard that is sort of maintained within those circles and it's very evident through the media that there is a significant amount of pressure as well as always reporters around for, for different aspects of the family. So did that impact on you in any way? Yeah, definitely. But you won't find me ever getting 
my violin out for myself um, in the sense that I think the challenges now I'm sort of 40 and an adult are very different to the challenges you have um, when you're a teenager and a child at school so first of all both um, of my parents decided not to send us four siblings off to single sex boarding schools they were like we want you at home we want you to have a grounded education co-ed day school um, you know near to home um that's what we want we want to see we want to see you which is nice um so we went off to a co-ed day school on the Wirral um near Liverpool and yeah you know kids get bullied about stuff whether you're too tall too short too fat too thin too ginger too blonde too pretty too ugly too spotty you know ours just happened to be the fact that me and my old sister had a title um did the other kids really understand what a title was? No. Did we get teased for various things? Yes. That was fine, really. Uh, you know, in the sense that it was never too sort of too over the top. What I found really interesting as a child was that sometimes the teachers would say things that were really inappropriate. Um, so that is the bit that caused trouble and um, occasionally my my mum in particular would sort of wade in you know so I remember one teacher for example sort of saying in front of the whole class if um if I kidnapped you would your parents pay ransom and if we were in sort of French for example or was it Spanish I can't remember um we'd be talking about how we get to school and we'd have to say it in a foreign language and then I remember a teacher saying something like well you'd come in a private jet wouldn't you Adrina and I just, you know, my sister, my older sister used to guess it as well. And that's what really bothered us. So I remember if there was any anger at all towards anything, it wasn't other kids saying stuff. It was um, often when the teachers said things, which was problematic mm. and incredibly unprofessional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for children, you don't comprehend these things at, at younger ages, whereas an adult, you've got whether the culture's grabbed you or the media has, has influenced you somewhat. It's one of those things that you, if you think it, don't say it. <laughs> well, and also, if I was disabled, would you take the mick out of me? I mean, hopefully not. If I was poor, would you take the mick out of me? I hope not. Mm. Um, so just because I come from the background I come from, does that make me a legitimate target? And actually, you know, maybe yes. Maybe yes, it does. But um certainly from a from a young age and so I think you know that's certainly instilled in me a sense of being able to kind of then challenge authority and challenge people who you know challenge my teachers that can that can be that can be quite a sort of scary thing for a child but I remember having to get quite comfortable with that quite sort of quickly if you know what I mean do that in a polite way and and just sort of say you know it's not okay to say that to me so I think that might have helped me later on in life um sort of you know I know we'll get on to my work in the prison system but being able to sort of politely challenge people and say I'm sorry but that's not appropriate and sort of make the point but then move on is was an important lesson I think and that's something that I've discussed in a, in a just actually just publishing a previous podcast now about we were discussing how different opinions are a good thing but there's certain ways to approach these things you can equally have someone turn around and say, I don't agree. And this is why. And that is perfectly okay. That is part of what we are as human beings. We, we should be entitled to have our own opinions um, without feeling like we're offending someone too much or whatever it is. But there is a point where it can be too much. 
And I think we all know where that boundary is, or most of us know where it is. Yeah, and I think it's always about how it's done, isn't it? Of course. It's always about how people communicate and, and how these things are delivered. You know, the fact that someone doesn't like me maybe because of my background, that actually doesn't bother me. I sort of think, well, I might feel the same if I was, you know, struggling to pay bills and, you know, life can be really, really hard. So, so I understand some of the animosity that might come my way, but it is the way you voice your <laughs> disapproval of someone sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and status, in my opinion, doesn't dictate the importance of someone's existence. It doesn't dictate how much you have a voice or if you should be listened to or not. And I'm sure with your current line of work, that is just so evident. We all make the uh, same mistakes and it doesn't mean that we're any less of a person. It means that we took a slightly different path at some point or we have a slightly different opinion and that's okay yeah yeah I completely agree so um just before we move into your work because I'm sure it's going to be a a deep conversation when we get into that because there's loads of stuff I'd like to talk to you about within that that framework obviously people will know if they look you up uh, your relationship as a goddaughter of Diana and how that person that lady was a huge influence for for many different aspects of of the country and people around the world for different elements of work that she did so did you interact much as you were growing up did you have a lot of time spent within her company yeah so I'm the eldest of Diana's godchildren to be honest not really um in the sense of spending a huge amount of time I mean yes when I was small we used to see each other occasionally and I'd get a birthday present and a Christmas present. But beyond that, um, you know, me and my family lived up north in Chester. They were all down sort of south in London. Um, so not, not, a, not a huge amount, to be honest. But um, I mean, I often get asked, was she an influence in my life as a sort of philanthropist and, and things like that? And, and of course, you know, in a way, my memories of Diana are almost like everybody else's because she was so famous and so sort of on our screen and in our papers, that almost that becomes the reality for everybody, um, regardless of how well you know someone or not. But, but I think, to be honest, you know, the way I answer that question when I'm asked as to whether she was sort of such an influence on my giving, to be honest, it's more the people that I meet on the ground, if you like. So, you know, the frontline workers, the prisoners, um, you know, they're the people who actually really inspire me because to meet someone who's had a horrendous life, they've ended up in prison, they've got an addiction, they kick their addiction, they get their life back on track, they get a job, they live a law-abiding life. To me, that is like trying to climb Everest on one leg. You know, that's yeah. inspiring, that's impressive. Um, and, and those are the types of people that I guess move me and sort of kind of, I guess, give me the... Sounds really cheesy. I was going to say, give me the life force. <laughs> sort of getting a bit carried away now, but but I I really mean it. You know, I yeah. every time I go into a prison, which is a few times a month, you know, I never fail to walk out of them just going, oh my god, I've just met someone who is incredible. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it's one of those questions that I know would be on the end of people's tongue. So I think it's one of those ones to sort of tick off before we move into your work. Just because like you said, such a famous figure and obviously Prince William and Prince Harry are at the forefront of, of so much news as our life in the UK because it's such a huge part of royal family. It's, it's a massive part of our culture. Yeah, exactly. And it's the context within which I sit 
and I'm a philanthropist and of course you can't be a philanthropist without then sort of going into why you've got lots of money to be giving away you know it's quite a strange thing isn't it yeah and then I mean it's an incredible thing to do to to be able to 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 give it away as well um the other thing I wanted to ask is obviously your gap year was spent somewhere abroad would you be able to go into what led you to that and then also a few of the details around what that entailed yeah so um I ended up going to Nepal by myself aged 18 I think I was or maybe I turned 18 when I was out there and it was funny because we were all sat around sixth form at school uh it was break time we're all talking about what we're going to do for our gap year you know again in a privileged position to be even discussing uh taking a gap year but uh lots of people were going to go to Australia um a lot of talk about going up and down the Gold Coast in a camper van which yes of course sounded pretty appealing but I sort of thought you know actually I want to be out of my comfort zone I always had this desire to be doing something slightly scary which could have worked out quite badly for me and I think you're probably a similar character right because you ended up sort of joining the military so there has to be some sort of desire to to be in uncomfortable positions and in risky positions and that's what's exciting so I ended up going to Kathmandu without any friends so funnily enough when I was sat there eating my cake and drinking my tea chatting to my friends I was like well I'm gonna go to Kathmandu to work in a prison assistance missionary does anybody want to come <laughs> and I was like dead silence so I went by myself and that seemed completely normal to me until my younger sister turned 18 and then I was like my god that is quite young to go to a third world country to work in a prison system (laughs) but I just toodled off out there and I I stayed with a Gurkha soldier and a Gurkha family Um, So I got really intrigued by the Gurkhas and learned a lot about that. My father was in the military, um, Mm. so he seemed very happy that I was with a Gurkha family. But really, my parents didn't know much about where I was. I think my father had looked him up on some army computer and realised that this was quite a high-ranking Gurkha. So he was like, oh, you'll be absolutely fine. And so I did a week in Kathmandu and then went down to the border of India to a place called Bairoa, which is like the flats of Nepal, where all the paddy fields are. Um, And I, because I was meant to be working in Kathmandu, but then something happened and I didn't, and it was decided that it was best that I went down to the border. So I was like, oh, okay. Uh, And just got on a domestic flight down there. And, you know, Kathmandu is kind of full of tourists and there's lots of people on holidays. There's lots of foreigners down in Bairoa none I was literally the only white face the only English person the only tourist there's nothing touristy down there at all it's where the open border to India is so I was like oh okay and I always find you know those situations really interesting because whenever things crop up about whether it's diversity in schools or how children might feel if they're the only ethnic minority around you know I always remember thinking oh this is what it must be like it's quite uncomfortable actually anyway so I was down there for about three months and we went up to a prison it was a provincial prison in the Himalayas and four little boys came out of this prison they were serving time alongside their mothers they were all under five and they had never seen a car before they'd never seen a white person before and I'm standing there going hi (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Would you like to get in this car? Uh, 
also slightly thinking where the hell am I and what the hell am I doing and why am I not in a camper van on the Gold Coast of Australia getting drunk um and these four little boys got into the car with me and they all sort of quite quickly laid down and with their heads on my lap and you know the roads in the Himalayas are really really windy and they were all sick and it was like a four-hour journey back down out of the Himalayas into the flats where this sort of house was and the idea was that we'd look after the children and take them back to see their mothers once a month but actually they'd be clothed they'd be fed and they'd mm. be educated because oh. of course being in a third world prison as a child um is not an excellent place to be really so sorry Edwin were they so the mums or the mothers have been uh, had to go to prison have they given birth in prison and then the children have stayed with them for a certain amount of time and then they're taken away or was it literally they've gone in and the children are say age five and then you basically need to pick them up and look after them yeah these ones in particular um they haven't been born in prison that i remember they had mm. gone in and and also people can often spend years on remand in a prison and then they might you know, so that's wait, awaiting trial. And then they could be found innocent, but they could have already served five years by that point. And then there's also this thing of, oh yeah, you know, Nepalese families, you know, they're really family-minded. And, and yes, they are, but at the same time, there's a huge um, stigma attached to someone going to prison. So often then that person is cast out of the family. So they might be on remand, sent to prison, undergoing trial, cast out the family, even though five years time they might get proven innocent. That's still a huge boundary they need to overcome and say, no, I was actually innocent, but I did spend five years away. Yeah. And of course, you know, that's not to say every Nepalese family, but you know, you've got the caste system as well in Nepal um, mm. and you have all these sort of different hierarchies. And so um, it's, uh, it's pretty complicated, but yeah, there's a huge stigma attached to it. And so I looked after those children for about three months. Uh, we took them back to see their mothers one day. It was um, a month later and they were all a bit fatter and their infections on their sort of legs had cleared up and their bellies weren't so big. Because when they came out, they had big sort of tummies. Um, standard. Yeah. yeah. And um, we took them back and I've got the photographs in, in my house and they all look very serious. And it was um, a festival called Dasai and um they all have red tikka put on their head with sort of rice which all sort of falls off down their face and they had gifts and we got um i bought them some new little track suits from Kathmandu where i'd been for a week wow. um so we took them all back but i remember kem the man who i lived with who was sort of running the charity at the time and he said the thing is edwina if the mothers don't want to let the boys go at the end of the visit we can't do anything about that and i remember being like uh, I'm sorry, what? I've been looking after these four little boys for the last month. I used to walk them to school and I'd have to, each one would hold a finger. So I'd have to, I know this is audio, so the listeners can't see, but I'd sort of make that rock and roll sign. Yeah, like full finger, little finger on each hand. Yeah. So two children would hold a finger on my left hand and two children would hold a finger on my right hand. And they were really protective of me because I was like their cool white person. And all the other <laughs> kids in the area would be like, oh my God, this weird white blonde person's taking these children to school. So I'd be like the Pied Piper because all the children would come out of their houses <laughs> and come sneaking out of the paddy fields from behind some trees and buffalo and they, they'd want to walk with me. Um, but the boys were like really sort of protective over me and so always be sort of trying to get rid of the other children if they were trying to get my attention. So the idea that we'd be taking them back to this prison in an area called Tanzan 
um, in the Himalayas, the idea that they might not all come back out at the end of the day was just unbelievable. So we took them back. Mothers were all pressed up against the bars and they had their arms stuck through the bars and they were like wailing and crying, but with happiness. And these little boys get out of the truck and, you know, they're tiny. And you can see them looking really rather nervous at all the shouting. We opened the little, it was like a little trap door, but of bars. And the boys like sort of went through into the prison. One, two, three, four, they all went in. And then we shut the door. And I looked at Kem and I was like, what do we do now? And he said, well, we'll just go and hang out in the village and have lunch and we'll come back at like four o'clock and hopefully they'll come out. So I was like, oh my God. So it was the worst day. Um, and we got back at four o'clock to the prison and there was sort of all this commotion because, you know, it was all chatty Nepalese sort of language chatting going on. And, um, and I could hear the children shouting as well, but in a happy way. And I remember standing at the gate and I could see them because it was really dark inside and I could see them coming closer towards the gate. And I was like, I'm going to get these kids out. And so the gate opened this little kind of like trapdoor gate as I said and one came out and I sort of remember like putting my hand on their head and being like a little push <laughs> like some <laughs> little push just to make sure they Keep really going. got out yeah. and then the second one came out and then the third one came out and then the fourth one came out and I was like oh thank god for that I mean obviously I'm talking in a very selfish sense it must have been horrific for the mothers yeah of course I just sort of thought the idea of not getting them all out so we shut the door and it was really interesting I remember their body language so well because when they came out they were like and I wrote this in my diary because I'm a sort of prolific diary keeper they were like little conquering heroes they suddenly had a bit of a strut and they were like the cool dudes who'd sort of been into the prison had all this attention showered on them. They, I mean, they came out with sort of all these gifts. They sort of happily got back into the car, but I remember just standing there and then looking at the women, the mothers, you know, I wasn't a mother at the time, I am now. And, and you know, the wailing and the crying was horrendous, but it was trying to measure that with being really pleased that the boys were out and that we could still look after them. We could still, edu you know, we could give them a bit of a start in life yeah i'm sure i'm sure um, i mean i find now as a parent if i see something where there's a child involved i think you innately you draw that uh connection to your to your own experience and it's very hard because you start to internalize these processes but when you're younger i mean i witnessed things in conflict and different areas of the world and it didn't affect me at all like i, I it, don't get me wrong i found it very sad but it didn't have that sort of like it'd been hit in the stomach almost like that. Oh, whoa. What is that? Do you think it being a mum now, like going through that same situation would have been quite different? Absolutely. Uh, without a doubt. I mean, it almost makes me sort of well up even retelling that story, which I haven't told for sort of years and years and years. So, yeah, I think you have a you have a thick sort of naive skin when you're young. And I mean, naive, not necessarily in a negative sense. It's just your life experience is, is much more narrow. And I think that's what's brilliant about being young. And I think that's why you should do as many things as you possibly can when you're young, because actually, I mean, now, I mean, I'd cry as an advert on the television. It's absolutely ridiculous. My family are always laughing at me. They're like, God, you're such a crier. You know, and I'm like, I know, I just never used to be like this, actually. Um, but yeah, it does. And now working in the, um, you know, in the prison system that I do in England, anything to do with children and babies is um, much, much harder than I used to find it.
so you obviously spent that that whole but is it was a full year gap year was or was it a number of months it was a full year doing different things and Nepal was one part of it so actually it looms large in my memory because it was so profound um but it was only three months three months abroad especially in that environment you spend a lot of time thinking obviously you're with someone that could guide you but thinking of food different environment you're always looking out for things it's, it's just very different when you're at home time can pass very quickly because there's a routine that's what I tended to find and I was by myself you know so I looking back on my diaries you know it was really lonely I was with a lovely family but it time dragged and you know it was um so it really wasn't a walk in the park and I remember my relaxing week off was to go for a trek in the Himalayas and I wasn't very fit (laughs) so I nearly nearly killed myself and I went trekking by myself and my trek guide I'll never forget him he was called Bugle Major and he was from the Gurkhas and he had a terrible alcohol problem. So every village we went into, he just disappeared off to get absolutely smoked. And I'd be like, cool, okay, just by myself. I don't know where Bugle Major has gone. Uh, and then he'd sort of appear out of someone's hut, you know, kicking the chickens and sort of tripping over the flagstones. And we'd disappear off to another village for Bugle Major to go and get his, uh, his moonshine. <laughs> Even so then the juxtaposition of leaving Nepal the next thing I went on to do was to go and work um, on a polo ranch in Australia. So I went from third world prisons into high goal polo, where horses were being flown from Argentina to Australia in order to sort of play these tournaments. So honestly, by the end of my gap year, my head was absolutely That is a massive contrast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That short period of time, the three months, did you appreciate how different cultures work because obviously spending time with a significant amount of money in a probably beautiful home um, beautiful area with a with a great family and and going to spend time where you see the contrast of life and how cultures differ did that impact upon you significantly yeah definitely it's interesting just taking one point being the sort of comfort aspect of beautiful home and all the rest of it. And then, you know, I was in a lovely house because the Gurkhas end up with a good army pension so they can afford, you know, nice big houses. So this was like the palace of the area of paddy fields that I was in. And, you know, there was three dogs and it was sort of three stories. Um, but the bed was like lying on concrete. And I remember I th- there was woodworm in the head, the bed head. So all night long, I'd hear this sort of crunching some insect inside the wood. And then I remember there were like geckos that sort of used to swing on the sort of thin curtains. And and the dogs would obviously bark all night long because that's what they were there for. Um, They were there to sort of protect the property. And I had to lie diagonally across my bed because I'm five foot 11 and Nepalese people are generally not five foot 11. So, So in order to fit in my bed, I had to lie diagonally. So even sort of things like that, it was like, oh, wow, okay. But strangely, I've always been quite adaptable. I always just remember thinking, gosh, I'm so lucky to have the house that I have and not all people do. Anyway, what else? I remember feeling very nervous about leaving because I was cognizant of the fact that broken connections and broken relationships are tricky for children um, in particular. And so I felt as a significant person now in those children's lives and someone who'd been with them for three months, suddenly disappearing 
weighed really heavily on my mind. So my mum and my older sister came out because I really wanted them to see where I had been living. I wanted them to see where I had been working and I wanted them to meet the children because I thought otherwise this is going to be a very big moment in my life that nobody else will understand. So they came out and met the kids and that was all really cool. And then I remember leaving them that evening and they were all holding balloons standing on the steps of the sort of home. Uh, and I was obviously wailing and sort of crying, not in front of the kids. I waited till I'd gone, obviously, because that wouldn't have been appropriate. Um, and then I sort of thought, and I remember saying to the children, I'll come back and I'll see you again. I promise. And so I started university, obviously, quite soon after my gap year. And the first place I went back to as soon as I could was back to see the children. Um, and there was more of them then, but that was a really important thing for me to not break those promises. Did uh, that experience influence what you studied at university? Yeah, I always knew I wanted to study criminology. Um, but then I suppose the key thing was I wrote my dissertation on children being reared in prisons. But um, it was looking, well, it was an East versus West comparison. So looking at mother and baby units in England um, compared to children being reared in prisons in Nepal. Um, but it really came down to the attachment theory and those broken attachments. Um, and in England, a baby will be removed from a mother at six months or 12 months, depending on the length of their sentence. And now, you, you know, you know what it's like to have a six month old and a 12 month old. And I certainly remember when I my eldest is now 10 and my youngest is six. But when I had my first baby, um, Zia, I remember her being in a little Moses basket by my feet and I was looking at some prison policy that I'd been asked to look at. And I remember thinking, my God, if this baby was removed from me, I'd turn into a wild, psychotic, violent banshee. You would, yeah. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. And, and if I couldn't do anything about it and I was in a cell in a prison, there's no doubt I would probably be self-harming and it's just it's inconceivable really and you know it still happens and there's reasons why it happens sometimes it's not safe for babies to be with their mothers you know I get that I've worked in prisons for 22 years you know I do understand the complexities behind it but it's uh yeah when you put yourself in the position of having a baby removed from you it's um it's mind-defying really do you have to try and slightly remove yourself from the emotional perspective? Because obviously we know that every thought has an emotional attachment and it's very hard when you're working with policies to sometimes say, I mean, we used to have this in the services. There was a policy to follow or a set of rules to follow because everyone knew those rules. So you could always fall back on them. So worst case scenario, you knew they were there, but emotion could sometimes take over. Like if someone went down the position, you know that you're trying to do something for the greater good. As a unit, you're working as a group of people to achieve a set goal. So sometimes emotion would say, do this, but you think, actually, no, I need to do this. So it must be quite a challenge, especially like we said, now you're a parent, now you can put yourself in that situation and say, what would I do if my children were six months or 12 months or two years old? It must be quite hard. So do you find you can remove yourself or do you find that's quite a challenge? Yeah, I think you have to be able to, in order to do your work effectively, and in order to remain working in the prison 
surface or with it and around it and around its sort of complexities yeah you have to be able to because otherwise you just go mad or sort of have a breakdown or when I came out of university I started working in a women's prison in Manchester and that was sort of like I think it was almost every day it might have been five days a week I can't remember I was sort of in and out a lot almost on a daily basis and working um, in the drop-in centre I would um, take the families in and look after the children while you know visits were on and so I was I was very very engaged but someone once gave me a really good piece of advice which was you know how do you look after yourself when you're going into such a toxic environment the whole time and someone once said to me what you need to do is um before you go in you have an imaginary cloak and it's like a a, a protector's cloak and it can be any color you want but it is something that deflects the emotion off you um so you put that on symbolically before you go in and when you leave the prison gates you just take it off and you get in your car and you drive home. And I remember thinking, are you mad? Um, and then actually I've always quite enjoyed that kind of stuff because I thought, well, there's nothing else I can do. No other advice has been given to me. The prison service wasn't telling me how to look after myself being sort of, you know, exposed to um, really, really difficult, challenging things. So I thought, oh, well, that's something I can do quite easily. Uh, and I did used to do it and it did really help. It was just like a, a little mental exercise. Uh, and, and I always remember that. And I tell that to see younger people now who might be starting work in, in the system, particularly if they're prison officers, you know, and they'll laugh going, well, that's not really going to help if someone tries to stab me on the wing, is it? And I'm like, well, no, <laughs> hopefully you're not going to get stabbed on the wing. But, you know, it's just a little mental exercise that one can do. And I do remember that actually helping. But yes, now that I'm older and I've got three children and you have to be able to switch off, you come out of a prison, you know, it takes a while sometimes for things to percolate down and that will either be on the train journey home or in the car, you know, I'm kind of used to it now. Um, and then you walk through the door, there's three children in your face. You know, they wanna show you the draft they've drawn. They wanna to talk to you about <laughs> their Christmas list you just have to go from one bananas situation to another and you have to be able to you know let go of some of it but you know I do get unbelievably angry um about things I do get so the government recently have um, announced well in the last six months that they're going to build 500 new prison places for women and you spend your life sort of campaigning um sort of against things like that it makes you really angry because I sat on a board advising the government for five years they acknowledged the fact that the majority of women are in prison for non-violent crimes so over 80 percent um, the majority of women are in for less than six months in prison there are many women who are sent to prison for their own safety which is not what we should be doing at all and they say there needs to be a reduction in those numbers yet then they turn around two months later and say we're going to increase the capacity by 500, which equates to one whole prison. Instead of 12 prisons, that's 13 prisons. So, so there's things like that where you're just like, oh my God. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of things that sort of jumped out at me there. Is, um, you said about for women's protection. So you mean rather than prosecuting the other party, they're put in prison because it's easier? It's sort of understanding the way men and women come into prison. And this is something that a lot of people, um, understandably, don't think about. Um, but if you look at a typical woman who's in prison, it's usually, they're usually from a domestic violent background. Um, there's been abuse, there's been trauma. Um, 
you know, all sorts of awful things have gone on. And they're usually in for sort of low level acquisitive crimes um, or sort of prostitution. So, uh, so yeah, not violent to sort of other people necessarily. But usually women are abused by the person to whom they say, I love you. That's not typical for men, but it's very, very, very typical for women. Um, you know, behind a woman's crime, there is usually a, either a pimp or a gang lord or an abusive partner, you know, someone like that. So if you look at a man who's going into prison, you wouldn't usually find a female pimp, a female gang lord, um, a female abusive partner. Okay, we know that men sometimes suffer abuse at the hands of women. Um, we don't know the number because there is no data because men don't report for all sorts of reasons. So there's huge differences. So, so the community can be a very, very dangerous place for women. And I think that's probably come to the fore a little bit more since the Sarah Everard case and women going, oh yeah, it's completely normal when you go out to be thinking about how do I keep myself safe? No, I won't go down that road because it's a bit dark and something might happen. You know, and it's a very different experience for men. So of course, when you look at how men and women end up in prison, it's very, very different. Mm. Could you just describe that case for those that aren't aware of that, just to show you the context? Yeah, the Sarah Everard case, the young girl from Clapham, I think she was, um, she was walking home one night. It was this year, wasn't it? Around Easter time, I think, mm. or a little bit after Easter. And she was um, abducted, raped and killed by a serving Met officer. So, yes, had many of the hallmarks when the police told women that it would be better if they stayed at home for their own safety um don't walk around late at night I think it was 9 30 and you know when you look at the Peter Sutcliffe the Yorkshire Ripper you know the case back, cases because he killed multiple women back in the 70s you know that's what the police said back in the 70s stay at home women don't wear short skirts women don't get drunk women and it's like oh so I've got a great idea how about hey men <laughs> please can you not attack us when we're drunk please can you not think we want to be raped when we're wearing a short skirt and of course you know I can hear people sort of saying not all men um of that, course that is to point out the bleeding obvious of course not all men but mm. it was just very interesting in the Sarah Everard case that um the sentiment was the same but anyway so yeah the point is the way women come into crime and come into prison um is very different between those two groups and that has to be sort of reflected and understood in in policy and legislation well, I mean, like you were saying, it's easy to say, right, we're going to pick on the symptom of whatever the mechanism is and say, right, that party that's normally at the risk of it, i.e. women of being um, raped or abducted or whatever it might be, it's easy for them to say, just just stay in the house rather than we're going to put more police on the beat, we're going to increase numbers because we've got no money, all this sort of stuff. And even even with those cases in hand, it still doesn't justify making that comment it's a case of we need to find a way or a strategy of improving this. And surely that starts with education as well. Well, yeah, I think it does. Um, but going back to the original point, which is women being sent to prison for their own safety, hopefully that has painted a bit of a picture as to why sometimes the community isn't safe for women. So when you have a very vulnerable woman and maybe she doesn't have a home, you know, maybe she's street homeless and she's um, prostituting herself. So a magistrate will go, I mean, I can't send you back out into the community. You don't have a home. So actually it's not necessarily 
people doing something untoward, it is genuinely safer. And a lot of women that I speak to will be like, well, I'm in prison, I get food, I'm in a cell and I'm not being raped or beaten and I'm not being prostituted. I don't have gang lords on my back. I don't have a pimp, you know, on my back. So prison can often be safer and quieter and calmer for women. And I've worked with many women in different prisons who when the end of their sentence comes, they will know what they're gonna do in order to get back into prison because it is so much safer. This one particular woman, she'd made herself look entirely like a man. Um, and I said to the officer, you know, so what's going on? And we were talking about this lady afterwards. And she said, well, she has such an awful time in the community and she's been so badly um, sort of abused that she feels that if she makes herself look like a man, then she's less likely to be attacked and assaulted and, and raped. And, and she talked very articulately about how safe she felt in herself. Do you think prison is the wrong place? Do you think there needs to be more uh, like halfway points where it can be a more constructive way of getting people back into the community, but equally looking after them and building up their confidence and teaching them essential life skills so they can go back into a community? Because I get the impression from talking to friends of mine that have done time and people that have worked as policemen and I've got a few friends that are police and they can be quite disappointed in, in, in the way that they have to be put in a position where they have to almost say, right, you've done something wrong, you have to go in, but I don't agree with the way you were spat back out of the prison service because you've just come straight back into life and you don't know what to do. And we're just going to pick you up again in two months' time and put you back in again. Exactly. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not naive to the fact that there's some pretty unpleasant people out there mm -hmm. that need to be removed from the streets for our safety. Um, I used to work with male lifers. I've met plenty of prisoners that you wouldn't want to see anywhere near you on the street. So I'm not an abolitionist in that sense. However, the prison service is full of many different people. <laughs> and of course, you and I are talking about the section. So if you have a traffic light system and you've got the reds, maybe they're always just, you know, they're the very dangerous, very difficult. You wouldn't want to meet them on a dark alley or sort of anywhere. Then you've got the ambers and with the right intervention, and with the right care, you could set them on the straight and narrow. But if you don't, they would probably end up being a red. That's interesting. And then you have the greens. And this is how I oversimplify things in my head. Then you have the greens who it's like, my God, I never thought I was going to end up in prison. This is totally horrific. You know, they are never, ever, ever going to go anywhere near a prison again. And they've been so traumatized by their experience. You know, that is that. So, of course, the greens are one thing. But then it's really the ambers that I think we as a country and the government and the Ministry of Justice should be making sure that they are the ones that we turn most of those ambers as many as possible to greens, making sure that we don't just heap collateral damage on top of people, because otherwise we are investing as taxpayers in a system that is making people more dangerous and not less dangerous. And, you know, whenever I'm either giving speeches or doing talks, you know, it's quite powerful to sometimes say, no matter how anyone feels about the prison system, I know that we are all 100% aligned in the fact that when people come out, we want them to live law-abiding lives. No one can disagree with that. But the unpalatable truth for some people is that in order to make those people go on the straight and narrow, 
we have to treat them in a way that is maybe unpalatable to some. Well, if we put it in context, say someone's come out and they could get a job working in a corner store, but previously they were in prostitution and they're earning a thousand pound a night, whatever it might be, uh, but they're earning five pound, well, say 10 pound an hour. And you've got to run a home, you need to do all these things. Surely that must sit there in the back of their mind and think, well, I was doing £5,000 a week, £7,000 a week by doing this. And it's easy. Like it's, it's not enjoyable, but it's, it's far easier than hauling boxes around or doing a hard day's labor. So I, I've always struggled with this as I've grown up and started to see more cultures around the world and start to see more people's, uh, basically see how people have gone from lows to highs and highs to lows. And it's hard unless you do generally put yourself in that person's shoes. Because otherwise, it's very easy to sit in our own situation and say, well, let's think of my life. Okay, I'm at home, I'm comfortable, I have shelter, I have food, all the rest of it. And I have enough to pay for things. Whereas you can't judge somebody else based upon your own lifestyle. It doesn't work that way, does it? And it gives you a false sense of how someone's really living. And you can't say, yeah, put them all in prison. People who've said to me over the years, well, I knew right from wrong when I was 18 or whatever, whatever age. And I'm like, well, I mean, good for you. Yeah, Isn't fortunate that nice to have that. that. You had some parents who were telling you right from wrong. But, you know, that is so telling, um, you know, towards that person because it's like, right, so you have no idea of the backgrounds that some of these people have, some of the trauma that they've suffered, some of the, you know, stories that just would make your hair stand on end. And whenever I think I've, heard the worst story of someone's upbringing you hear another one you know you should go into the sort of youth offenders institutes and my god some of the stories you know and actually someone is a victim up until a certain age and then of course when they get big and slightly uglier maybe and less sweet that's when they become the perpetrator and it's so interesting to think of society where does society suddenly flip and go oh it's not that child victim anymore it's this horrid adult perpetrator and we no longer have sympathy you know and that's a really interesting sort of blurred area because of course also when you turn 18 you're an adult so you go from the youth estate into the adult estate and fundamentally we're dealing with sort of people who've had you know incredibly traumatic lives often it's not to excuse always what people have done or it's never to excuse what people have done but what we do need to do is understand um and I think that's where sort of people fall down really they just sort of think oh lock them up throw away the key but the other thing that most people don't understand is if our prison system sits at I think the numbers are around 87,000 you know there's only about 100 that are never coming out or between 50 and 100 I don't know what the stats are today it used to be sort of around 50 but I think it's gone up substantially but you know out of over 80,000 it's less than 100 who are serving life without any chance of coming out. But it's in all of our interests <laughs> to yeah. make sure they come out calmer. Yeah, because I mean, th- this is the thing, just, just picking on a few things there is that if I was to put myself in my shoes where someone did harm to a member of my family, there's no way that's being forgiven. Like I think it's, it's a very, very hard situation to. So anyone that's listening that has gone through it completely can't fully understand but I can definitely understand based upon my perspective of what's gone through but equally like you said just to put someone away and not teach them 
that it was wrong and teach them how to live a better life and to be kinder to others and how love can be part of the equation and how things like meditation, all this sort of stuff can be integrated into someone's life. It's you're just hiding the problem. You're not dealing with the problem. You're just waiting for them to come back out and do it again. Totally. Because, you know, again, going back to being a parent and so much of my prison work is now centers around sort of me being a parent and kind of how I talk to my children and watching, because it really is a case of your children do what they see you doing. They talk in the way you talk. So if I'm swearing all the time, my children will start swearing all the time. If I'm shouting and I'm aggressive, my children will be shouty and aggressive. It just so happens that I'm a bit of a disciplinarian. I'm quite hot on the pleases and thank yous and I'm really loving towards them. So they have manners and they're really loving. You know, this is not rocket science at all. So if you have a person who's really aggressive and violent, well, guess what? They've probably been brought up in a really violent and aggressive way. You know, they always talk about the love that you're shown is the love that you will seek. So if you are shown violent love, you will seek violent love. So when it comes to the women, why do they always go after, you know, men that abuse them? Well, because that is the love that they've been shown. The love that they've been shown is abusive and violent. That's all they know. So to suddenly sit there and say, well, they just shouldn't do that. They should do something else. It's like, it's like saying, well, you speak English. You need to speak Chinese now. Yeah. I haven't been taught. I can't do that. It's a habit. Yeah. It's yeah. So, so, so people can be very um, narrow-minded, I think, when it comes to all of this. And we sort of train a lot of prison officers and probation officers and police officers. And the one thing that they that people find really easy to take away is we say, you know, simply change that question from what's wrong with someone to what's happened to mm. them and see their behavior as a communication because it is all behavior is a communication and so then they're like oh you know start you know because they don't get trained in sort of trauma and any of this more complex stuff before they come into the job do you think that's a big downfall within our system as a whole i mean i, I i've been trained in different jobs and and um services the sort of trauma aspect comes at the end of the situation or it's like uh, i remember attending a few incidents where we had a few fatalities and we had someone dispatched to come and talk to us after but again it's an afterthought it's like it's already happened and i tend to think i've seen this with many things in life the way you interpret the situation at the time is the issue because that you, you formed your perspective of what's happened based upon what you've learned prior to it and your history. So that's ingrained in there. So then you need to try and compute it after. So it's almost like the hard work, like more hard work is needed after instead of mitigating the process prior to it and saying, yeah, if you see the situation, this is what happens when you're in the emergency service. This is what you see. This is how you deal with it. Understand that for me, it was, would you want someone else to have been in that situation apart from you? And my response was always no. I wanted to be there to help. So it's it's, it's a hard thing, but I think trauma is one of those things. That it's definitely become more apparent as years have gone on. It's definitely being more, um, it's definitely being recognized more, but I still feel like it's at the end of the list. It's still not at the forefront of these problems. It's at the end of the list, yet it's just there all the time, isn't it? So, and I think, 
sometimes what can be misunderstood is people think of trauma as this thing out there, right? Trauma with a big T. So in the theatre of war, you're seeing people being blown up, your friend gets sort of blown up, there's some horrific fatality, it's blood and guts and awfulness. Um, in prisons, it's self-harm, it's suicide, it's someone being attacked on the wing. For staff, it's the vicarious trauma sometimes of having to cut someone down from a ligature, dealing with self-harm issues. So vicarious trauma is obviously the sort of experiencing it, um, but it not happening to you in, in, in that sense. But then what about the traumas with the little T? You know, things that actually are huge, like a child experiencing their parents divorcing being in a car crash or witnessing a car crash. Um, you know, so I was talking to someone the other day and it's amazing then when people start going, oh, and I was talking to this person who said, yeah, we moved from one country to another because of my job. And my daughter was like 12 at the time and she got really quiet for a couple of years afterwards. Maybe, you know, maybe that was quite traumatic for her. And it's like, do you think? You know, it's really interesting. Um, and I think we have this way of othering everything, isn't it? Trauma happens to other people. It's like, no, every single human being who has a heartbeat <laughs> on this planet, generally speaking, um, will have experienced some type of trauma. Doesn't it make life a lot easier when you understand that? Because you don't feel like you're the only one. Because I think for many of us, we think, oh, I'm the only one going through this trauma. So a couple of ways. I, I don't want to burden someone else with a the problem. They won't understand or they won't sort of get me. They're, they're not going to be able to relate to this situation. But I think, like you said, if we all dial back, we're human beings. We all go through challenges and trauma and it's part of the equation. And the way I always thought of trauma, it's something I can't yet comprehend. That's the way I used to think of it. It's something I can't yet get my head around, but I will. And then that removed the, oh, it happened to me. I, I wasn't a victim of it. It's just being a human being. We go through these things in life. And unfortunately, some people go through worse traumas in terms of more, how do you say, acute traumas uh, than others. But it doesn't mean it's any different. It doesn't mean we're any less of a human, like we said earlier. And well, no, and that really interesting thing, two human beings can be standing next to each other and witness the same horrendous thing happen. But one might end up with PTSD. The other one might be fine. You know, so again, it comes down to not just, oh, well, you know, that happened to me and I'm all right. So why isn't this person all right? You know, it's just having, again, that level of understanding that we're all really different. And, and you know, I was very lucky growing up. My mother was always sort of talking about, you know, uh, she was really into dream analysis and graphology and oh, she really? had all these amazing books on, you know, the Dalai Lama, the Art of Happiness, um, any kind of book on how to change your thoughts, change your life, you know. And I just remember always like raking through her bookshelf, being like, oh, that looks interesting. The Dalai Lama looks like a friendly guy. Um, and, and I remember just kind of like getting fully stuck in because I was like, this is cool. It was a bit like being told to put my imaginary cape on. It was brilliant because, you know, you suddenly go, this is all within my gift to be able to learn. I mean, yes, I was lucky because my mum talked about it a lot and had the books. But now that I'm a mother, you know, I, so my children are six, seven and ten. And I've always, it doesn't matter how small, you know, talked to them about how they are the ones who have to be able to change their thoughts. I mean, I think I said something to my son this morning about something. And it's just those messages the whole time, the whole time. You know, how do you look after 
your own sort of mental health and of course you don't talk to your children about looking after my mental health but it's like oh you're really wound up let's do a bit of breathing let's just relax your shoulders you know let's talk it through and sitting down and really looking at them in the face and sort of like I'm really listening to you what is it that you just want to offload onto me Rachel I talked to her a few weeks ago gone through certain types of training over the last couple of years uh, she's a dietitian, but she's explored other things and she was saying something that I learned in yoga a few years ago uh, through sort of checking in with different sensations in the body one of which was you feel an emotion but how does it actually feel where is it coming from what does it actually feel like is it anger and what's anger our heat builds up in the body my hands are shaking so dialing it back to the processes of okay if we my hands are shaking and I'm hot what can I do about it how can I mitigate going right back to the source as opposed to dealing with the symptom. Like you said, as a kid, you can't, if someone said to you, right, the Dalai Lama says this, you're like, one, who is the Dalai Lama? (laughs) Apart from a very happy man, it seems like. But yeah, it's it's almost like dealing with sensations because we can all relate to, uh, as as children say a lot, like my tummy hurts. Do you still have like deep conversations with other family members or did you have deep conversations with your mum around the books that are around like the Dalai Lama's perspective and that sort of stuff as you, as you were growing up? Did you actually go into depth, uh, especially in your teenage years and after time in Kathmandu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mum would constantly, and it's really interesting because I find myself, I always say to my children first thing in the morning, I don't say, did you sleep well? I always say, did you have any interesting dreams? <laughs> and it's really <laughs> normal to me. And I found myself doing it the other time. I was like, guess that is quite weird um but I love remembering my dreams and that is because mum when we were teenagers was always like and I'd say oh I dreamed that I was sort of in driving a car and then the car was out of control and I drove off a cliff, cliff and she'd be like oh my god um you're like what what does it mean <laughs> yeah I think it's quite self-explanatory I was probably a bit out of control at the time and yeah we um <laughs> So yeah, we had endless conversations about things like that and anything that was happening in the family that might have been sort of tricky or challenging. It was, you know, conversation, conversation, conversation. Um, And it was great. You know, there were never any secrets and it was, we tackled everything head on. Um, Mum was always trying to find ways of um, dealing with things in the most emotionally mature and appropriate way sort of possible. And, you know, that was an amazing learning ground for us really I think I think we were very very lucky uh but then it's wrong to think that everybody has that because then as you grow up you go oh okay <laughs> I mean, this stuff look- isn't taught in schools and um yeah maybe it should be well you look at like some of the I mean, I've read that book as well and a number of others some of the Dalai Lama's texts it was something that I got into a lot along with Alan Watts's work and a few others and that really changed my perspective because like you said about the cloak, what that reminded me of is the ego. You effectively have the ego as your cloak and sometimes you put a different color on depending where you are. But beneath all of that is the same thing, the same I, whatever that is, not Edwina or David or whatever it might be. That's just a label that's put on us and we can, we can adapt that. But fundamentally, we still absorb these things. We still have to deal with these things. Yeah, and it's really sad that, you know, a lot of these books, and if you're wanting to learn about yourself and your emotions, you know, I think it's better now, but it's still a bit like, you know, what book are you reading? It's all sort of wishy-washy guru language. And you say the Dalai Lama, and a lot of people are like, oh, God, you know. Um, But actually, I sort of think, you know, God, poor you. You know, you just obviously 
haven't been able to sort of penetrate this world, which is fundamentally about you understanding yourself mm-hmm. and therefore understanding the world around you much better. And what I wasn't expecting was then to be able to be having, so some of the, the people that understand this the most, often the people inside prisons, they all talk about the mask they have to wear on the wing, you know, the people they have to become in order to survive. You know, they totally get the symbolism stuff, the kind of, you know, who am I, who am I behind my cell door and who am I when I come out onto the wing? You know, I think particularly with the men and the sort of the bravado that they have to keep up and it's sort of attack or be attacked. You have to assume a different character often to survive. Almost learning, it's like uh, a hierarchical way of living. It's like you're finding your hierarchy within the, the tribe effectively within that environment, aren't you? And something that isolation in different aspects for myself, not to that extent, but definitely seeing it in different aspects of my life has always taught me something because it allowed me to find introspection instead of constantly looking outwards. Because I find for men, men in particular, actually, no, I'd say men and women. I mean, I can only really relate to to the male side and from what I've seen through um, family and friends, distraction, football matches. Yeah, come on, just man it out and all this sort of stuff. It doesn't work. Well, it does for a degree. Maybe it masks it, but it will come out. Yeah, it prolongs the inevitable. It does. My husband and I talk about this all the time because, you know, we've been through certain challenges together as a couple and I will tackle things head on immediately. I'm like, right, what do I have to do? Do I have to journal? Do I have to meditate? Right, I'll do all of it. (laughs) And I'm like a real little geek. And I'm like, I will overcome this, but I need to overcome it quickly because I've got things to do and I've got (laughs) children to raise. And, you know, and it's just so different watching the way Dan might experience things and um, and we'll laugh about it now. And he, because I've talked to him so much about it and he's fairly good on these topics anyway, but you know, there's been times when I'm like, listen, I can't be your rock if we're going through this trauma together. You need to go and speak to some male friends, please. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh God. And then I remember this particular challenge that we're sort of going through. And he did eventually take my advice and and sort of went and chatted to a few mates locally. And he was like, oh my God, yeah, so I told him this. And then he just then told me this. And now he's like the biggest sharer of everything that's going on (laughs) because it was such a profoundly positive experience for him. He's now got some really, really close local friends just because he was big enough, I guess, and brave enough to show a bit of vulnerability. And as soon as you show a little bit of vulnerability, people are often meet it with an equal measure of their own vulnerability. And I think women do that quite naturally. And I think often um, also when we become mothers and you're going through such a catastrophic, might be the wrong word, but I'm gonna <laughs> stick with it. So, you know, your body, your mind, your emotions, your diet, everything about you just, changes so of course we talk to each other about it and you form some very intense female friendships when you're going through pregnancies and and then after having had babies but I think it's harder for men and also because culture says man up don't cry don't show your emotions don't show your feelings I mean that's what boys often are taught yeah I think there's a difference though between the word I was thinking was that vulnerability as well 
because you are showing that there is uh, multiple layers to yourself. It's not just a front where you're always good. None of us are always great. Some incredible celebrities over the years have been at the forefront. Robin Williams stands to mind as well, how he was very much the happy guy, but behind the scenes, he was going through many different things. Everything's on this, this spectrum, I think. And sometimes if you're high, you're gonna be low. And if you're in the middle, sometimes if you just stay in the middle, it's a little bit easier. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's the right way because we want to be on top of the world sometimes. And sometimes we have to be low and that's okay. But talking, there's nothing wrong with talking about this stuff. There is a difference between just wallowing, I think, and not getting things done. So being open to conversation and saying, okay, I can understand this. And I can, I've been through this as well. I can help you through this process. Or I know someone that's also been through it and I recommend talking to them. That's a proactive approach to a problem. I think the difference is with the victim mentality when it's like, oh God, the whole world's collapsing and all the rest of it. But that's what friends and family are for sometimes as well, just to sort of say, come on, let me get, let's crack on. Exactly. And I suppose then the challenge comes, bringing it back to a prison perspective. You know, a lot of these people don't have friends or family, or certainly they don't have people around them that can help them think in a different way or yeah. to be in a, in a different way. So it comes back to one of your points you made earlier about do we need something other than prison? Talking about the sort of group in the sort of amber pod. Mm -hmm. And very much, I think we do need services in the community where people can be helped to resettle and to rehabilitate. And I hate those two words because rehabilitation basically means nothing. And it's a, for me, it's a slightly toxic word. It's jargony. It doesn't have a real definition, actually, I don't think, in the, in the prison system. And resettle, it sort of indicates that someone was once settled when actually you're dealing with many people who have never, ever, ever been settled. So they, they can only dream to be settled. So, you know, I think the terminology is really important. Actually, one of the big projects I'm working on at the minute is um, a project called Hope Street, which is a countywide project that will sit over the whole county of Hampshire. And it's about reducing the female prison population by creating in the community what's needed in order to be able to turn women around at the point of the magistrate's court. So instead of them being sent to prison for their own safety, instead of them being sent to prison for a low level crime, if they're homeless or their home is too dangerous, because of course you can't give someone a home detention curfew if there are abusers in their home. So that's why for women, you do have to have a different design to how you help them compared to men because the issues are different. Um, so Hope Street will be a sort of network of uh, residential places where women can go with their children, they can serve their community sentence, but they can serve it with us in a place that is safe. Um, there'll be flats, there'll be a cafe, there'll be a detox facility. The requirement set out by the court for this particular woman, it might be you need anger management, you need parenting courses, but you also need to come off your drugs. So we will be able to say they can come to Hope Street they can jump through all those requirements, but they can jump through it safely with us. But crucially, they can come with their children so their children are not taken into care. So we are hoping to open that next year, the latter end of next year. And it's been designed to be replicable and scalable so that you could have Hope Street Cheshire, Hope Street Yorkshire, Hope Street any other shire, um, 
And therefore you are basically turning the tap off at a county level of those women who should not be going to prison. There therefore is another way and there's another place for them to go and another place for them to be. Of course, if you were to do Hope Street for men, I would go back to the drawing board and I would design the model differently. Why would it be different? Because would we have a crash if it was the men? Um, we have a crash at, um, at Hope Street at the moment. Well, we're building it. Most of the women who go into prison are the primary carers. Most men who go into prison, not all, but a lot of them will have already lost their children or their children are with the mothers. So to paint a picture for you, imagine a man leaving a prison and a woman leaving a prison. What is typical when a woman leaves a prison is that there'll be a pimp or a gang lord or an abusive partner waiting for her. When a man leaves a prison, and I remember sitting with the governor at Brixton prison, we were watching this man going out. He had his prison bag over his shoulder. He's doing his gray tracksuit and out he was going. And on the other side of the gate, you had his mother, his girlfriend and his children. The children were still clean and dressed. They were going to school. You know, the women were taking care of the home in his absence. Yeah. Um, that's not typical for women in prison that there's a multi-generational scenario of men looking after the home and making sure the children are closed and educated. And of course, that is generalizing. Yeah. Um, there's always an exception to every rule. Um, however, that, that is typical. It's been really interesting as well, just to see the contrast. I think it's, as like you said, there's always different parts of that spectrum where there's an outlier or there's hundreds of men that might be doing it differently or, or ladies that are doing it differently. But it's something that I've always wondered how the prison service differs between sides. I know we're running out of time as well, but one question I did want to ask without opening a massive can of worms was, as a lady, you also work in men's prisons. Is that quite a challenging environment? Yeah. So what I would say to that is when I go into a women's prison, I am sort of, if you like, with my tribe. Um, I don't think too carefully about what I'm wearing. You know, I don't think about how I'm holding myself. I don't have to think about my game face. Um, when I go into a men's prison, and my organisation works across the 17 long-term high secure male prisons. So um, I'm in those prisons quite a lot. And I think very carefully about what I'm wearing. It really matters how comfortable I'm feeling um, in my clothes. And how I hold myself and if I'm walking across the yard and all the men are out, if I'm walking down a wing and all the men are there, yes, many of them will shout and say pretty revolting things. Um, the more I'm in the men's prisons, the more it deflects off and, you know, I have to put my symbolic uh, protective cloak on <laughs> and everything bounces <laughs> off me. Um, but yeah, people can say some pretty weird, gross things. So there is an element of like, you can feel eyes sort of burning into you sometimes and so yeah I don't necessarily feel like I'm going to be attacked so I don't worry about physical violence to be honest maybe I should more but I don't um, but I do I am very conscious of the fact that I'm being looked at in a in a particular way and some of the prisons that I work in are prisons for sex offenders only so you can imagine we all pick up on energy when we walk into a room. And when you have a wing of a hundred sex offenders and you're a woman from the outside, you know, there's many female prison officers that work in these prisons, but I don't know. Yeah, it's a very different thing. But when I'm in the women's prisons, it's just, it's just very, very natural. 
because that leads me into the next bit is daily habits that have kept you um that sort of keep you on track i mean does that still involve things like journaling keeping a diary do you find that has been quite a therapeutic process over the years since childhood certainly when i'm dealing with a really extreme challenge in my own personal life that's probably when i write or something really mad has happened work-wise even if it's like wonderful and amazing but bizarre and it might relate to a dream I had and then this thing happens you know just so so when it's sort of really um significant I'll write things down but of course then you never have the time and all the rest of it so it's not like a daily thing um one of the best pieces of advice anyone ever gave to me was Edwina don't forget to have fun because I think when you're really obsessed with your work and you're busy it's something I think that we all need to be really conscious of. You know, first of all, don't take yourself too seriously. Um, make sure that you're careful about how much this sounds a bit trite, but sort of news consumption. And, you know, I'm a ferocious news consumer. And then suddenly you go, oh, God, I feel really deflated and depressed. I'm like, oh, yeah, I wonder why. So screw the 5am club, because when you're a parent, all you want to do is sleep. So the idea that you might get up at five o'clock to do a bit more stuff is just ludicrous. Maybe when I'm older and I have teenagers and they're sleeping till one o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but at the moment, screw the 5am club. Meditation, I'd love to do it. Uh, my mum meditates every morning. I just simply don't have the time. And I know that sounds really bad because everyone can find 10 minutes. But at the moment, park that. Um, I do like to listen to guided meditation sometimes to fall asleep. I never have a problem sleeping. I'm a brilliant sleeper, but I just quite like it. Um, but having fun and just sort of not taking life too seriously, actually, I think is um, a really important point to hold on to. And the great thing about having children is that there's uh, plenty of opportunity to sort of have fun with them. And I think balance as well. So I'm I sort of pour over my paper diary and it has to be a paper diary. I have an online diary, but I'm dyslexic. So I have to be able to look at my week and my weekends. And often um, my husband and I will put lines through weekends. So if we're away one weekend, we'll put a line through the next one to make sure we're home. So, you know, we're both really busy. Everybody's busy in life. But if you physically put block time out in your diary, for fun to do nothing I will not go out for dinner on this Saturday night because I want to go to bed at seven o'clock in the evening or be in my pajamas I'm going to have tea with the kids at five I think that's that's really important as well because I know when I get stressed and I get stressed if I'm not with the kids enough and if I'm not home enough and I also get stressed when I'm unorganized and badly prepared um, so I like to prepare for everything and I like everything to be organized. And those are my two things. But in that balance, you also have to be making sure that you are seeing old friends and that you are. It's really difficult when your children are small. And I can probably hear some people thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I've been there. I had a six month old and a one year old and a four year old. And I was sort of building my organization and my father died that year as well. So I get it. But um, sometimes it's just simply not possible to even dream of speaking to a friend. Um, but when that time comes and when that part of your life opens up, I think it's really important to make sure that you prioritize fun. I totally agree. And I can definitely relate to some of those points as well. It, it's, it's always hard to, to balance this, this thing, this existence, this, this life um, 
trying to sort of be of service, but equally trying to maintain your own shit. It's hard. <laughs> it's a challenge. <laughs> I normally ask a question, but I think you've covered most of it already. It's about uh, the human first principles, but I would actually like to pose a different question to you. And that is if anyone knows of anyone that's just come out of prison, or if you are someone that's just come out of prison, what advice would you give Edwina to help someone get back on their feet or to develop from, from this point? Gosh, thanks, because that's a really difficult question. Welcome. <laughs> um, and I guess that really depends on the multitude of challenges that might be facing that person, you know, whether they've got an addiction or not, whether they're a woman, whether they're a man, whether they're a child. Um, but what I would say is, and again, this is very dependent on having access to a computer, maybe, and being literate, which many people aren't coming out of prison. But, you know, there are so many amazing charities in this country that work with people coming out of prison. Um, there are so many charities that support women, that support men, that support young people coming out of prison. And it's really about trying to find out where they are. I mean, you know, there's hundreds of these charities, the Prison Reform Trust, Women in Prison. I mean, I sort of could go on forever, but it is difficult if there's no access to computers. What I'll say as well is if um, if I can grab a list of those charities or organisations and I'll list as many of them as I can in the show notes so people can find links. And if you are someone listening to this and you know someone that needs help, you can always jump in there and actually help direct that, even if it means taking a computer over to someone or printing it off to help them get that that extra assistance. Because I think it's so important, like you said, to provide an experience where someone can start to learn and improve their life instead of going back to old ways. They're actually seeing a form of development as time goes on. Awesome. That's, that's well, I, I could talk to you for hours, Edwin. I think it's... Um, some... <laughs> and I could bang on for hours, but we probably should leave it there. <laughs> That's incredible. Thanks so much for joining me. I know how busy you are, how many projects you've got ongoing, but um, just really appreciate learning about how your life has been quite a contrast in, in some, some ways from sort of going through comfort and then going through uh, challenges and then trying to help others through very challenging situations. I think it's a very credible thing. And yeah, the more we can do that as people, I think the better, the better this place will be. Exactly. I think um, someone once said to me, it's probably quite a well-known quote, your comfort zone is a lovely place, but nothing ever grows there. And I love that because um, I do honestly feel that every time I'm in a prison, and yes, it's been 22 years that I've been going in and out of them, I always come out having sort of grown a little bit more, I think. And, and you know, I think that's the thing about having a passion in life, isn't it? It's really important to, to have one and to sort of hold on to it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Edwina. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. For more information on Edwina's work, her podcast, and anything else she's been involved with, please head to the links in the show notes, and I will see you on the next episode.